It's good to be back here at CBC. And wasn't it great when the barbershop quartet burst into four-part harmony? Yeah. Right? There's something beautiful um, that I love about the hymnody, about hymnals, um, is that the opportunity for the congregation just to create something that's more than the melody, but they have the harmony as well. So um, being able to sim sing hymns together and pull out the hymnal and try to pick out um, the bass notes for me is one of the great pleasures of singing that. And um, there's something just majestic and wonderful. So it's great to be here. Um, let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. You are the Lord. You are the one who reigns. You are the one who rules. You promise um, you have overcome death and you've brought us new life. And so um, it's in light of who you are uh, that we um, follow Sam's lead and pray for um, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan and all the countries where um, you come to church acutely aware of the danger and the vulnerability that you face in having gathered together. And for those of us who gathered in safety today and whose uh, greatest feat was just getting here on time, um, Lord, stand with our brothers and sisters today. And as they complete their days of worship, having worshiped while we slept, um, guide them into safety, we pray. And be with them in Christ's name. Amen. We've been looking uh, over the last couple of weeks, I know from talking with Dick and from being here, at how God has been slowly revealing his promises to the patriarchs. Um, how he promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will make you a great and mighty nation um, whose numbers um, are greater than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Uh, you are my people, and I will be your God. And at the, even at the end of Genesis, you read what goes on, you think there's still a pretty small group of people, uh, some 70-ish, 80-ish people by the time um, Joseph finally passes on, maybe a scant hundred far from the stars in the sky, uh, far from being the sands on the seashore. And as we all know from uh, knowing the stories of scripture, they stay in Egypt for some 400 years. And they move from a period, place of great welcome and great privilege, having been given some great land and um, a welcome of the Pharaoh to being a people who um, the Egyptians hate, who feel threatened at every turn, who have basically been reduced to slaves in their own land, um, but who've swelled indeed to a really a mighty people as well. And the question that we should be asking as we begin to engage with Exodus is, so how is God going to fulfill this promise of his? Right? You, so you've made us a, a mighty nation, but we are far from the land that we want to dwell in. We're not quite as numerous as the stars of the sky, but um, we are so numerous the Egyptians fear us. But we don't live in the land that was promised to our ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We aren't experiencing the prosperity or the freedom or the joy that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't have the wealth or the opportunity that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You fulfilled part of your promise, but how about the rest of it, Lord? And I wonder if um, we don't feel some of that same tension today, right? Jesus Christ has come. Hallelujah. But I don't know about you, but the, my freedom from sin, um, less free than I would like, where your people gathered here on a Sunday, but as Sam's video so powerfully demonstrated to us, the church doesn't seem to reign with any great confidence, strength, or security. And maybe even more ultimately, Jesus 
um, has promised through his scriptures that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, God the Father. And we sang about it in that, this last hymn, right? That some will sing it with great joy and others with great anguish. We seem far from that. Um, most people aren't even antagonistic. They're just apathetic. They don't care. And how do you live in that great tension between um, what God has promised about the redemption that he chooses to offer us and all of creation and making all of creation new and redeeming and renewing our relationships so that we live in peace with one another and the actual world we seem to live in right now. And it's, it's in that kind of place, right, that tension of, oh, you promised so much and we've experienced so little that this passage in Exodus 3 um, is quite helpful to us and quite um, illustrative to us. So you all know, I trust, um, the story of Exodus, at least in the first uh, two and a half chapters that we haven't read together, but you may have read during your weekly Bible reading uh, before coming to this week. 400 years have passed. The Pharaoh is worried. He, he orders a genocide of the young Israelite males in order to eliminate the next generation of leadership. And two women, two midwives, right, um, low-class women, because women were low-class in Egypt, who dealt with birth, which made them even lower class, choose to oppose the Pharaoh. And God somehow uses these two powerless, low-class, ceremonially unclean women to completely change the course of history. And what I love about chapter 1, right, is they save this boy child. Um, and they refuse to kill the, um, he, well, as they refuse to kill the um, Hebrew boys, what I love is their names are remembered in Scripture. Um, uh, Pua and Shippa, and they get children of their own. And the Pharaoh, who seems to be all-powerful, doesn't even get a name. He just gets a title. Right? And it's those women that we remember thousands of years later. And then in chapter 2, a woman gives birth to a son and cares for him in secret, realizes this can't last, and so entrusts him into God's care, sets him out on the water, and lo and behold, God says, um, sends an Egyptian princess to discover the baby, gives her compassion in her heart, and she adopts this child as her own. And then in one of those great sovereign works of God to show you his care, manages to arrange for that child's biological mother to be his nursemaid. Right? What a gift to that mom. What a gift to that child. And so you pick up the story. Um, a couple years later, Moses has grown up in the palace, sees the oppression of his people, the Israelites, um, attempts to intervene in a dispute, uh, kills an Egyptian, realizes his people aren't so excited about him becoming his liberator, and he runs into the desert, um, finds a family there, and for 40 years he wanders around. And then one day as he's shepherding, he sees this bush burning. But the bush isn't being consumed, so he stops. And as soon as he stops and gives his attention to it, God begins to speak. And God says, this is a holy place, and I'm having a holy conversation with you. And then you get to the passage that we were reading today. The Lord says to Moses, right, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Right? And I want to suggest that whenever we're in that place where you ask, how is God going to fulfill his promises, right, to bring all people 
um, into a knowledge of who Jesus is, whether um, because they have joyfully given themselves to that um, in their life or are unwillingly now having to acknowledge it when he returns. How is he going to redeem creation? How is he going to use this congregation to be salt and light? Here in Upper Westchester, when you think, how is that going to happen? The first thing to know is that the initiative always rests with God. Because the first way God chooses to intervene in this situation is to tell Moses, I've seen what's going on. I've heard the cries, and now I'm choosing to act. Moses had tried to take the initiative for himself in chapter 2. He sees some oppression, decides to jump in and fix it, and messes it up completely. He kills the Egyptian. He ends up alienating himself from the Egyptians as well as from the Hebrews who reject his attempt to be their leader, and he runs off into the de desert for 40 years. Whenever it comes to asking how could we as a people be engaged in um, fulfilling the promises of God by being his hand and arm in the world, we first remember that the initiative doesn't rest with us. The responsibility has been offered to us, but in the end, the initiative rests with God because God has seen, God hears, and God chooses to act. And this is critical for us. Because if in the end, the initiative rests on our part, if all of the effort has to come from us, we will be exhausted. We'll turn into those cynical reformers that you meet after every great reform movement, right? After every great revolution, the revolutionaries become the oppressors. After every great massive social change, the people most engaged in it, with notably few exceptions, end up turning to people who consolidate their own power, who've become cynical. The only thing that will equip us, empower us, and keep us moving forward faithfully in hope rather than in optimism is a conviction that all of this begins with God. And God reassures Moses, I've seen what's going on. Don't worry about that. I'm not a callous God who doesn't know. I've actually listened to the cries of my people, Moses. Don't be worried. My heart has been moved. And I'm concerned about what's going on, so I'm coming down to fix this problem. So what does the Lord see in here? I mean, he points out in um, the middle of verse 7 of chapter 3 in Exodus, right? I hear the oppression and the cries of the people of Israel. I hear the oppression by the Egyptians, and I hear the cries of my people. Now, when it comes to the issues of the people of God, we certainly trust that God hears our prayers. That's why we as a congregation gather each Sunday, and in the middle of our singing, we pause and we actually then offer up our prayers to God. Because we're convinced he listens. It's one of the reasons it's critical for us then to pray for the um, church in Pakistan, because we believe God hears the cry of his church. We believe the weeping of those mothers and fathers and children who lost loved ones in Peshawar are heard by God, and it matters. I want to also suggest that God definitely listens to the cries of those who do not yet know him. And it moves him to action. Now, I said at the beginning, right, I don't think that the world is necessarily even terribly opposed to God. They're just somewhat apathetic. But I think if we watch carefully, if we listen carefully, you actually hear the cries of a people desperate for God if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. You just have to translate a little. I was interviewed by the Christian Post earlier this week. They were reflecting, or they were reflecting on um, an event at Harvard University called Sex Week, and it's pretty much what you would expect—a um, week-long series of events and seminars designed to be titillating, a little um, 
boundary pushing, and they wanted uh, some Christian leaders on campus to respond to what was going on. And, my res and they were hoping for outrage, right? Because they always are. That's what helps move media sales. And they said, so what, do you, what does InterVarsity think about it? And I said, you know, the problem to me about those kind of events is that they just make sex boring. Um, in the end, it's for them, who puts what, where, when, why? And that's dull. Um, I said, InterVarsity looks at that not as a terribly offensive week. And if you looked at the schedule of activities, some of it was obviously designed to be offensive. I said, we look at it as a week-long desperate cry by the people at Harvard University expressing their deep need for intimacy, their deep need for love, and their longing and desire for transcendence. It's far more than just a biological body issue. They're expressing the poverty of their hearts. And it's our role as Christians to hear not lust, but loneliness. Um, and fascinatingly enough, at Harvard University, the chapter, um, the university chapters gathered together, they're starting a month-long series on the Song of Songs as they're counter-programming. And what I love about it is they're not countering the events of Sex Week by doing a long thing on you know, Pauline restrictions or positives. But what they're saying is that we want to confront you with the level of the imagination. We want to create a redeemed imagination about what intimacy, what love, what mystery and delight are actually about. It's not in the cheap things that you all are doing there. It's in this glorious dance and relationship that will then push us to actually begin to think what God desires to have with us. There's going to be mystery and delight, transcendence, connection, and love that's stronger than death. It's desperately what the campus needs. Not a group of Christians going, tut, tut, that's just so inappropriate. But instead, oh, you haven't even begun to push the right boundaries. There's so much more an offer than you've even begun to believe. How do we listen for the voices of the lost, the cries of the lost, rather than being bothered by what goes on. When you look at um, the excesses, for example, on Wall Street, it's easy for the church to go, oh, it's just all greed and selfishness. How about the deep longing for security that drives some of those people? How about the longing for transcendence, to know that your life matters and has impact, to actually feel like you have the resources to accomplish what you might have been designed to do? Does the church have anything to say for people who are looking for security, who are looking for um, significance, who are looking for impact? I should hope so. How about for all of the pettiness that you see around you, right? In um, the shopping lines, as people cut in front of you, as people are rude on the highways, what's going on there? Some of it is just so petty, um, it lacks words. But where, how does the church hear the frustrations, the hardness of heart, the loneliness and bruising that occurs on a day-by-day -day basis that turns people callous to one another, how is that reflective of a longing for real relationship, for deeper community, for longing to be noticed, observed, for just a little bit of space to experience a Sabbath? The Lord sees and the Lord hears. And sometimes the cries are clear, as when, I hope, when the church pleads before the Lord. And sometimes the cries are muffled. But if we want to see and if we want to hear what the Lord hears and sees, then we have to learn to make that kind of translation. Um, Richard Mao, who uh, just retired as the president at Full University, once told a story. He was um, in Haiti, uh, it was probably 20 years ago now, right, watching um, the incredible poverty there the abuses of power that occurred there. And he said, what came to me was um, that children's song 
that uh, we often teach kids in, um, in nursery school, right? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And he said, normally, he said, I suspect at church, um, it's a little bit of the, you know, don't look at bad things, don't listen to bad things. And he said, what happens if it was actually an imitation? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Will you look for the things that God is actually looking for? Will you listen for the voices that God is listening to? Don't shut yourself off from the world, but begin to translate their cries um, into the cries of prayer desperately, of people who desperately are in need of God, and they just don't know it yet. Well, the Lord says to Moses, right, I've seen what's going on. I've heard, I'm listening, and I've chosen, I'm concerned, I'm choosing to act. And then the Lord does this funny thing. He says, I've come down to rescue them, um, to bring them up, right, to um, a land flowing with milk and honey. So I'm coming down to rescue them and bring them up. So now you go and do it for me. Talk to the Pharaoh, bring my people um, out of Egypt. Now, if you're Moses, what you're thinking is, wait, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I believe you said you were coming down. Why am I going out? Right? I mean, at least that's what I would be thinking. Like, well, so go do something about it, God. I mean, if you're coming, why do I need to go? And yet this is so typical of how the Lord seems to act in Scripture. If you look at um, Luke 10, verses 2 and 3, the Lord does, Jesus does the exact same things to the disciples, right? He says, look, the harvest fields are white under harvest. They are ready to be repraved to the Lord that he'll send harvesters. And then in the very next second, he goes, go, be the answer to the prayer that you prayed. But it's not even like a 10-second pause, it seems, between pray that the Lord will send people to harvest. And they're all like, yes, we're praying, Lord, send somebody. Somebody goes, okay, so great. The prayer's answered. You're here. Go. Um, it, uh, it, when the Lord hears the cry of the poor, of the agonized, he tends to send us. To be engaged, right? There's no gap between the invitation and the command. The invitation, pray that the Lord would send people, so now go. I've come down to rescue the Israelites and to bring them up to a land of milk and honey, so go. Um, and I want to suggest this is really important for us to grapple with because of our tendency to separate prayer and action. And too often, prayer is our way of um, being partially engaged but not fully engaged. Right? If we pray, we're kind of off the hook. And I think what makes prayer radical is not the language that we use or the grandiosity of the requests that we make before God or even the ways that we invoke scripture, um, which are often ways that people talk about, I want really radical prayer. They just talk about, we'll just come up with increasingly grandiose things to pray about. What makes prayer radically transformative to, that cuts through uh, reality into the Lord's presence, I think, is the willingness to say, I will pray this, and then if you call me, I'm going to go, right? Wedding prayer and our action together. And so I'd actually reiterate Sam's invitation. You come, pray for the church in Pakistan, 1115. It's a critical part of our discipleship to stand with our brothers and sisters without flinching at the cries that are being offered, right? Because it's easy in the United States to flinch and, not, and kind of back away so that our hearts don't get engaged. But... Come knowing it's dangerous because the Lord may actually speak to you in that prayer meeting and say, so buy the ticket and bring your skills to go there. Reorder your jobs. 
and the ways that you're pursuing your career is because I need you in that place, or he may not. But to go into praise to actually say, I'm willing to hear that. It's a dangerous and scary thing then to engage yourself in prayer, that God's promises to his people would be fulfilled. But really, um, otherwise, what's the point of just having a kind of random list of things to pray for, other than to assuage our own guilt, rather than to actually put ourselves at the disposal of the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, who hears the cries of the oppressed, who sees what's going on and says, I've now come to act. Actually, I, I think in part that's why I ended up here. Um, I've, you know, you all know me well enough to know this was not the career I had planned for myself and certainly that my parents had planned for me at any point. Um, I was supposed to be a nice upper middle class doctor by now, um, preferably in my dad's eyes working in a hospital setting so you don't have to have all the problems of uh, local medical practice. But, you know, my dad, for my dad, it's all about security and safety, being a kind of, you know, uh, East Asian World War II uh, child. What changed the course of my life from doctor to end up being professional Christian speaking on Sundays? Um, when I was a college student, I was involved with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship chapter, and the, the leaders of the fellowship came to me my second year of college, my sophomore year of college, and said, at the end of that year, Greg, we would like you to be a leader in the chapter next year. And I knew that they were going to ask me, in part, I knew I'd been doing a lot, and I knew there weren't a lot of people left, so you kind of you know, look through the list, you think, they're not going to have enough people, they're going to have to ask me. And they said, but what they did surprised me a little, they said, we'd like you to be president. Now, this was a mixed chapter of graduate students and undergrad students, so I was just finishing my sophomore year in college. There were people who were already sixth-year grad students involved in the fellowship as well, so I was feeling pretty um, insecure, pretty young. And then they capped it off by saying, you need to know that you weren't our first choice. That person said no. Um, nor were you our second choice. That person said no. We originally intended you to be the small group coordinator, but because these people said no, you have to be the president next year. And with that ringing endorsement, they said, don't accept right away, pray about it. <laughs> and um, I thought, well, with that ringing endorsement, yeah, let me go pray about it. <laughs> the one discipline I, I took upon myself um, was I knew I loved the fellowship and I would be happy to serve them. I also realized we were to be a mission on campus, and I hadn't thought about that enough. And I had just been to the Urbana 87 uh, missions conference, and I remember um, Roberta Hestinus, who used to be uh, the president at Eastern University and was uh, chair of the board of World Vision, told the story of uh, the founder of World Vision, who, when he would hold uh, Korean orphans in his arms during the Korean War, uh, Robert Pierce would pray this prayer, Lord, let my heart break with the things that break the heart of God. And so I thought, well, I need to learn to pray that prayer. So I would go to Cobb Gate, which was this big ornamental gate that frames the main entryway to the University of Chicago. And I would sit off to the side and just watch people every morning come to the gate and walk into the university campus. And I'd get there on 8, 8.30, and so I would begin to watch students walk by, key faculty, administrators, secretaries, and support personnel. And the prayer I prayed was, Lord, um, let my heart break with the things that break the heart of God. And I remember thinking, you know, the students, it was like, oh, yeah, Lord, meet them. Let my, and then I began to think how God must see each of those students. Their loneliness and isolation, their fear and their insecurities, their lostness. I'd see professors who otherwise controlled my universe in many ways and just think about the brokenness that I knew about some of their stories from the gossip that students have about faculty. <laughs> I thought about um, 
the administrators who were often no-name uh, people as far as the university was concerned, as far as students, they were functionaries that we never even spoke to, yet without whom there would be no university to be at. Right? I thought of the support personnel who might give their entire career so that I didn't have to notice their existence. And my heart began to break for the university. I fell in love with the university and the, the students and the faculty and the administrators. And the entire course of my life trajectory changed. The Lord hears, the Lord sees and invites us then to do the same. As you pray, whether at 11.15 with Sam or whenever you gather for prayer, how could you ask the Lord, help me hear the things that you hear, help me see the things that you see so that we could sing with the children, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, and look at the right things. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear, so we'd hear the right things. Not just the grand and glorious praiseworthy things, but the desperate cry. Well, if all mission begins with the Lord's initiative and activity, all mission is really undergirded by the Lord's presence because Moses hears this uh, invitation, so go talk to the Pharaoh, and he immediately responds in verses 11 and 12 with, um, who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Right? I mean, I'm this shepherd hanging out in the wilderness, and you want me to go to the largest, most powerful um, empire that my world knows right now and say to the Pharaoh, release your slaves. How is that going to work? Now, at one hand, Moses' question is a little silly. I mean, who better to go to the Pharaoh than Moses? I mean, let's think about who Moses is. He's a Hebrew, so he can identify with the people being oppressed, who was raised by the Egyptian royal family. He probably knows the Pharaoh. They probably played together at some point in their childhood. He knows the court. He knows the court politics. He understands how you go to speak to people in power because he used to be one of them. He's not only just by birth and by raising a good person to this. We know he's an initiative taker. He did it poorly before by killing an Egyptian, but we know he actually has some gumption, to use a great word. right? He's not a passive, oh, we're being oppressed. I'm just going to grin and bear it. This man actually would like to see something done. He's not only that, he's the son-in-law of the local, local tribal leader whose lands you and all your Israelite friends are going to need to cross if you get out of Egypt, right? He's been hanging out in Midian, and his father-in-law is a great chieftain there. He has safe passage through that place. Hey, Dad, I'm going to bring my family, I call one million of them, through your land in just a couple of weeks. He's a shepherd of sheep. He knows how to herd people who aren't, or animals that aren't terribly smart to a place they need to go. He can probably manage the people of God as well. And he's been wandering around for 40 years living in the wilderness. He knows how to help and live in this kind of situation. Can you imagine somebody more perfect for this job? What else do you need? And that's exactly not the point, right? Um, Moses is perfect for the job, and yet all of his internal insecurities rise up and overwhelm him. And the devotional that uh, Deb Bellingham wrote for us focuses on this, I think, beautifully. Um, when God invites us to participate in his mission, I'm convinced we're often perfectly suited to accomplish what he's called us to do. When you look at your training, when you look at your life experiences, when you look at um, all the skills and gifts that you have to reach Westchester County, you are perfectly situated to do that. 
um, Bobby Clinton, a former professor at Fuller, used to call it your sovereign foundations. If you look at them, God has set you up perfectly to do what he's called you to do. But the problem is our own lack of self-confidence, our own um, self-perception leaves us fearful and afraid. And we feel inadequate to the cause, which is perfect. Which is perfect. Because in that space of our inadequacy, we, there's space for God. Right? And that's exactly how God responds to Moses. He doesn't go, Moses, Moses, please, I've arranged your entire birthing. I mean, who do you think got you to the Pharaoh's household through the princess? Who do you think has been watching over these? Right? God says none of that to Moses. He doesn't reassure him, you'll be perfect for it. Trust me. I've set it all up for you. God instead says to Moses this, I will be with you. Right? That's the answer to our insecurity when you get involved in God's mission. It's not your qualifications, academic or life. It's not your skill or confidence level. It's not your initiative. Our confidence comes from God's promise, I will be with you. And if God is with us, you don't really have to be worried that you're insignificant, that you have insufficient funds, activities, gifts, skills, or right? None of that's critical because God is there. And he has everything we don't have. He's smart enough. He's powerful enough. He's actually God. We don't need to be. Um, God assures Moses of his presence, right? I will go with you. It's exactly what Jesus promises the church right after the Great Commission. I will be with you to the very end of the age. From beginning to end, whenever the people of God are engaged in the mission of God, the promise is not that you'll have everything that you need. It's I'll be there with you. I'll give you the words when you need the words. I'll do the miraculous signs when you need the miraculous signs. I will convince the people when they need to be convinced. Don't just do what I ask you to do. And that space of our insecurity, no matter how large or how small, is precisely the space where you go, and that's the God space. And so as you identify your insecurity, when God seems to say, speak to your neighbor about me right now. Challenge your um, employer about that unjust practice. Speak up about the injustice around the world, or may it be so, do something to uh, speak for the persecuted church around the world. The space of your insecurity is precisely the space that God chooses to manifest himself. And I want to suggest in some ways, the bigger insecurity, the bigger space we have for God to act. I felt that um, intensely when I'd go speak with the chancellor of the Cal State system, right? He represents 23 campuses, is a senior leader among all the academic leaders in the United States. And I was going to go meet with him this summer to argue about campus access issues. And I walked in that room, sat in the conference table before he arrived, and I remember I was just feeling incredibly small. Right? And all of my Asian conflict avoidance, small conference differential, right? I kind of go, he's older, he's white, he's a senior administrator, he's the leader of these 23 campuses, I'm with University Christian Fellowship. And I remember feeling like, what am I doing here? And I could actually feel my body language begin to tighten up and shrink. And I just thought, one, if I do that, I'm going to fail in this negotiation. And second, I'm coming here as the Lord's ambassador. Right? I represent the Lord in this conversation, I believe. Or at least I'm going to trust I do and pray that I do. And so I have to come with the Lord's authority. And so I changed my posture. It was enough to know the Lord was with me. It's exactly what happens for those of us with little kids, right? My daughter, uh, Madeline, who many of you know, five years old, a little shy, afraid. The thing that will tip her over from talking to somebody that she doesn't know or doing something she's afraid of 
is not, Madeline, you could do this. You speak English, you speak French, you speak Mandarin. You could do, you could talk to these people. Don't worry, right? It's not, you're charming, it's cute. It's, do you want Papa to go with you? And as long as I hold her hand, as long as I walk through that door with her, she's fine. Oh, that we'd have faith like a child. The last thing, um, God answers, look, I'll be with you. And then Moses responds, so, um, and who is this I who is going with me, right? What's, what, by what name am I going to tell the people of Israel that they should listen to me? And obviously, name isn't just like, Joe? Like, what is your name? How, how am I going to describe you? It's really, how am I going to describe the totality of who you are, is how that the word name should be understood, right? What's the description of the God who is coming to save us? Especially if they're not impressed with my credentials. And God responds this way, right? I am who I am. I'm the eternal and I am, here's specifically what I want you to remember through the generations, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I'm the God who made a promise to them and I'm the God who has the power and the capacity to fulfill that promise to them because I'm eternal. I've always been and always will be. And so when I make a promise, it won't be bound by the small time frames that you want to use, but from eternity to eternity, I have been there. I created all things. I made a promise to your ancestors, and that promise is still true. And the reason you can have confidence that I will act today is because of the confidence that you had when I made that promise to you generations ago. So remember me as the covenant-making, promise-keeping God, Moses. That's the name you were to share with the people of Israel. And really... That's what undergirds right our confidence as we move forward in mission. It's not just that God goes with us, because if he was a weak, ineffectual, or unreliable God, then you're really in trouble, right? If God is a God who you're like, God, it's now time to act, he goes, oh, I wish I could, I just, hands are tied, right? If you're like, Lord, please do something now, and he said, I'm just not that interested. I don't want to do it. But if you go, Lord, you must act now, and he said, I have been acting on this since the very beginning of time. And I promise you everything that's encountered will one day eventuate that I will be the Lord over all and you will reign with me. One day, even if in the short term you shed tears, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. One day, even if you hunger and thirst now, I will fulfill every need that you have. One day, you will be Christ-like before me and perfect and all this struggle with sin will be done. And when I look at you, I'll see children just as perfect before me as I see Jesus Christ himself. Don't worry. I am the God who made those promises then, and I still remember them now, and I'll complete those promises in the future. I am who I am. I have been and will be forever. Don't worry. That's the God, the name of God, that you need to remember if you're going to engage in God's mission, Moses seems to hear. As we as a congregation think about who we are and our place in God's role, right, there are so many demands. There's so many limitations to what we can accomplish. There's so many insecurities that drive us. And what God seems to say to us is, don't worry. Do you think you know the needs of the community around you, the people you're engaged with at your home or your workplace? I already know. I've seen it, and I've heard it, and I've chosen to act. I'm sending you there. And if you think you can't do it, don't worry. I'm going with you. There'll be nothing too big for you to handle, because I'm bigger still. There's nothing too big for your heart to carry because I will bear that burden for you. There's no heart too hard to be changed because I am the changer of hearts. Do not be afraid. I go with you. And if you think that I'm going to fail in my commitment to do the things that I've already agreed to do, don't forget 
I've always existed. I haven't changed. The promises I made are the promises I will fulfill, and I remember them even to this place. So we move and pray with boldness, with courage, not with optimism, with deep hope, and without fear. Maybe let me end with this. The great thing is the Lord has seen our lostness and the lostness of the people around us. He's heard our cries, and he's chosen to come down and save us. Moses, practically for the people of Israel, then Jesus Christ, ultimately for all people. And then he does to us what he did to Moses and he did to the, Jesus did to the disciples. He sends us back out into the world to be his hand and arm, to declare his goodness, to declare his truth, to declare his love. And like Moses, we're inadequate, no matter how great our qualifications might be, and we're terribly unsure and insecure. We need God's presence, and we need to remember his promises. And that's why we come to communion on this Sunday as a tangible reminder to us um, that he has come down to rescue us and to rescue all people. That he changes us so that we be mobilized to go. A month, the monthly communion celebration that we have together is also God's tangible reminder. I am with you. I remember the promises I made to you of this new covenant, and I will fulfill them. And we take it not just to be in communion with one another and with our Lord, but I'd suggest in light of what Sam has shared and is going to lead us in prayer for later, we take it um, in communion with all the saints scattered throughout the world this day, right? Because we share one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We come really to one table together where the Lord himself is our host. And when we take the bread, we identify with the Lord and also all other people who are now feasting on the Lord. And we remember them as much as we remember Jesus and bind ourselves in communion to one another, to the Lord, and to the worldwide health of the church. This is our reminder. Um, we don't have God speaking to us from a burning bush, but he'll speak to us through bread and the cup. And then we set ourselves off into mission, as God calls. Let me pray for us. Thank you for the reminder of your presence. Thank you for confirmation of your promises. You are a God who saves. And you are a God who will not cease in the process of renewing us and redeeming us until one day we are perfect in, like in Christ Jesus. And one day we will join an innumerable host who will declare you as Savior and Lord to the glory of God the Father. May that be so. And then in your mercy and in your condescension, would you use us for your purposes, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.